page 994 in your pew Bible. And as you turn there, will you please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that right now you would come and be with us. Lord, open our eyes to your word. Open our ears to hear your truth. Open our hearts to receive what you would have for us. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12 and read through verse 15. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's inspired word for us this morning, so please be seated. Now last week we examined the baptism of Jesus, and one of these is a little bit loud there, Miss Layla. Um, which in a sense really served as an inauguration into the ministry of Jesus while it solidified his identification uh, as both God and man. And this is really, uh, really important, right? That Jesus is both fully God. And we see this at his baptism as God the Father spoke from heaven, declaring what? You are my beloved son. And then the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now, this is probably the main passage in Scripture where we would see all three persons of the Trinity together at one time. God the Father speaking, and God the Son here, and, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. But Jesus was not just declared to be God there, which he was. But by receiving John's baptism, he was also identifying with us humans and revealing the true nature, the full nature of his humanity. And the father declared of Jesus, of you, I am what? Well pleased, which, which really reminds us quite a bit of another man, that first man some millennia ago. This is still a little bit loud, isn't it? Okay, if we can turn it down just a little bit, Miss Layla. Thank you. That other man, right, that first man millennia ago there in the garden, God created that first man, Adam. And after he created man, what did God declare of Adam? He said, this is very, very good, right? Very good. And Jesus is fully and really God, but he's also fully and really man. And he's going to be for us in all humanity, a new and a better Adam, the only one who could break the curse that plagued all of us. And so here's your three main points this morning. You can jot these down if you want to. Uh, as we compare the new man, Adam, Jesus with the, with the old man, Adam, Jesus is, number one, Jesus is isolation and deprivation. Okay, isolation and deprivation. Number two, his assimilation and temptation. And number three, the culmination and proclamation. So we got some uh, alliteration? No, I don't even, rhymes, I guess is what they are. 
So deprivation and isolation. It's the very first thing that Jesus does. This is kind of striking, isn't it? After he's inaugurated and he's commissioned through his baptism, what does he do? He's sent out by the Holy Spirit deeper into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, isolation, solitude, and testing. Now think about this just for a moment. The, for the last 30 years, we really don't know much of anything about Jesus, the first 30 years of his life. We know that he's born in Bethlehem. We know that he's visited by shepherds. We know that he's presented at the temple at, at eight days old. At some point, he's visited by wise men. His family flees to Egypt, and then they come back after Herod dies. When he was 12, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover over with his family, and then he decides to send, you know, spend a little bit extra time in the temple quizzing the religious leaders and, and answering all of their questions. And that's really all we know about the first 30 years of the life of Jesus. I mean, think about this. This is the most important, most famous person who ever lived, and we really don't even have enough to fill a Wikipedia paragraph about his first 30 years of his life. But now, as it's time to start his ministry, his mission, Jesus begins his public ministry by doing what? By going off alone by himself, disappearing deep into the wilderness. See, for Jesus, his go time started with God time. You know, Martin Luther, the, the reformer, was, was famously so busy. Um, you know, he, he did the 95 theses, remember those things? They kind of ma nailed uh, Long story, he nails his remonstrances against the, the church onto a door in, in Wittenberg. He becomes like infamous or, or famous, depending on which side you're on. He's notoriously busy. People are demanding him to come and to speak and to preach all the time. And, and he, he would spend two hours each morning in prayer. And as the demands on his time increased, somebody asked him, hey, how is it possible that every day you are spending two hours in prayer, And this was his response to that person. He says, actually, I'm so busy now that if I don't spend three hours a day in prayer, I couldn't do anything. Have you ever said that? I'm so busy that I've just got to spend hours of my day in prayer. You know, two hours aren't even long enough for me because I know how much work is ahead of me. And that's, that's really Jesus, right? He's preparing for the work ahead of him. And he, so he goes off and starts to spend time alone with God. Now, coming up this Wednesday, we see the convergence of two uh, kind of very different uh, celebrations. Right, okay, so what's, what's happening? What are we marking on Wednesday, Kale? What's, 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 what is happening on Wednesday? Oh, gosh, okay. Had to be told. Okay, we have Ash Wednesday as one of those, right? And we also have what? Valentine's Day. Who's planning to celebrate one or both of these days at the same time, right? Maybe. Yeah, so Valentine's Day is really what the feast day of St. Valentinus. He was a priest who church tradition tells us was martyred on February 14th, 269, for the crime of attempting to convert Roman Emperor Claudius to Christianity. And so how do we commemorate his faithful witness and death today? We send each other flowers and chocolates and teddy bears, and then we get upset when we don't receive flowers and chocolates and teddy bears, or if we don't have somebody that's going to send us flowers and chocolates and teddy bears, right? Or if somebody forgets it, then they get upset that they forgot to send them to us. 
And Wednesday, of course, also is Ash Wednesday. So this is an observance that dates all the way back to at least Emperor Constantine in the year 325, but probably to the very first apostles, which marks that 40 days before Easter, excluding Sundays. Now, historically, many Christians have, have chosen this time to prepare themselves for celebrating Easter by following in those 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness and fasting like he did. I don't know about you personally, I've sort of gone back and forth on observing a Lenten fast. Uh, growing up, I was surrounded by a lot of nominal Catholics. And the only time you could tell that they were Christians was during Lent. Uh, and what that meant for me was they stopped serving pepperoni pizza on Friday at the school cafeteria. Of course, a little bit later as I got older and saw that they really didn't have a personal faith with Jesus, I kind of started playing that role of adversary. You've heard me probably talk about tempting my Catholic friends in math class with my Hillshire Farm meat sticks um, during Lent. And, and really, I was, uh, you know, probably not the best thing to do, maybe not the most Christ-like thing. But, you know, there's very, very sincere Christians, devout people who observe Lent. This is not just a Roman thing. This is not a Catholic thing. This can be a, a Christian thing. And there's, there's people that, that use this time to focus themselves on God. There's people that use this time to start a new diet or try to stop smoking or, um, you know, cut out their screen time or their sugar time. And then other people who kind of make a Lenten vow every year sort of like a New Year's resolution. And then after a week or so, they sort of give up on it. Um, but, but, you know, Lent is interesting because it's probably most known today or most popular today for the pre-Lenten celebration of Mardi Gras. Right, that, that gratuitous feasting and, and kind of a debauched celebration, which culminates in Fat Tuesday, where, you know, before a period of deprivation, we go into a period of excess. Well, the, the fast of Jesus that we find here in Mark, it's in, in the Gospels, is not just a fast from screens or a fast from sugar. This is an intentional time of physical deprivation and preparation spent in isolation, which, again, is a, in a lot of ways is really shocking. But think of it this way, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He already had humiliated himself to the point where he had left every heavenly rich, riches or blessing that he possibly could have known in order to come down and be a man. And it's also striking, he wasn't born in a palace, but he's born as a peasant. And now as the son of man, he's depriving himself of even more things. One of those basic human needs, the, the need for food. Uh, Brian taught us last year, was it last year, in VBS about the rule of three, right? You know, what's the rule of three? You can go three minutes without air, three days without water, three weeks without food. And, and here's Jesus, uh, you know, he's not going three weeks, he's going 40 days. This is a type of fasting that you and I probably can't even imagine, a denial of, of his physical needs in order to focus on a spiritual reality, to spend time alone with his father in order that he might prepare himself for all that he has before him. Now, why would Jesus choose to do this? Well, we read in scripture that, that he was led out by the spirit deeper into the wilderness. See, in some way, this is... God's plan for him as the new Adam. Remember that after Adam was created 
in the image of God. Genesis 2 tells us that he was placed in this luscious, incredible garden. And that he's surrounded by animals over whom he had dominion. He had this, this wonderful relationship with them. But in reality, he was all alone. In fact, remember that it's in Genesis chapter 3, Adam's loneliness, right? His loneliness was the first thing that we see described as not good. And that was before Adam's fall into sin. And now here's Jesus. He's the new man. He's also alone. But instead of a garden, where does he find himself? He's in a barren wasteland. Like Adam, he's also, it says, with wild animals. And the term here doesn't just mean like, you know, squirrels. This would be non, not just non-domesticated, but, but wild beasts. Think of those things found in the Jordan wilderness at the time. They would have been things like hyenas and jackals and bears and lions. You know, I, I love wild animals. And in fact, on my bucket list has always been to see a mountain lion in the wild. Um, but a couple falls ago, we were in Colorado for a church planter's retreat. And one night, Randy and I and, and one other guy are sitting around a campfire. And, and all of a sudden, out of the darkness, you hear this high-pitched scream. It sounds like a woman who is being murdered. Did you know that that is the mating call of a mountain lion? Now, knowing that there was a, a female mountain lion out there looking for a baby daddy didn't exactly, you know, uh, give us great comfort as we sat there in the darkness around the fire. I decided then maybe I don't really need to see a mountain lion. Just, just hearing one was probably enough for me. But there's, there's Jesus, and he's out there not in the garden. He's in the wasteland. He's surrounded by a wild beast. There's this uh, this very barren scene that lays before us of the new Adam. And then we have Jesus' assimilation through temptation. And, and what else do we know about the life of Jesus, those first 30 years of his life? What did he spend that time doing? What was Jesus professionally? Well, Scripture tells us he was a carpenter, right? A carpenter, that's a, a woodworker. He's a builder or a craftsman. Remember, in, a little bit later in Mark uh, chapter 6, they, they start to ask as he's teaching, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of a carpenter, right? Joseph, his father, was a carpenter. He was someone who built furniture and roofs and houses and doors and, and windows. And, and when you think about carpentry, I don't know how many of you are woodworkers, even as a hobby, but working with wood takes an incredible amount of patience and skill and precision and all of the qualities that I don't have. Jesus learns this on the knee of his father, Joseph, through imitation in his apprenticeship. So he's, he's learning what it's like to be us. And he's a member not of the ruling elite, but of the common working class. You know, he got along really well with the shepherds and the fishermen. He had little means, no prestige, not upwardly mobile. He wasn't socially ambitious. Jesus knows what it's like to be us. And you'll see that commercial again tonight if you watch the Super Bowl, the, the He Gets Us commercials, right? That there are people spending millions of dollars to try to, to, to capture something about Jesus that the world doesn't seem to understand. Because they believe that Christianity has an image problem. See, when many people think about Christians, they think about somebody that's unrelatable, like somebody that's too good for them. 
like, like the church is a place that they don't belong because they aren't cleaned up enough, that they aren't good enough to go there. Jesus is a club for perfect people. And I'm not one, therefore I'm not going to go there. That's not who Jesus is. Right? Jesus came as one of us, and he knows what it's like to be us. In fact, we can kind of think of Jesus' time in the wilderness sort of as like a basic training boot camp, right? Anyone in the room ever been in the military? What's the first thing that they do when you join the military? They take you in and they do what? They shave your head. Now, why do they do that? Well, they used to do it to avoid lice. I don't think that's as big of a deal anymore as it used to be. But now it's, it's more of an identification, right, to assimilate you, to, to, to break away from that individualistic mindset and to start thinking communally, to understand that, that you need other people. Your individualism is one of the most dangerous things in something like the military because if you have to rely on the person next to you for your life and all they are is looking out for number one, then you're going to have a problem. And here's Jesus who comes and he says, this is it, my life, all of it, I'm giving it for you. And so Jesus' time of testing and temptation is, is part of his assimilation into what it's like to be us. What did we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 4? We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, we have a priest, an intercessor, a go-between between between us and God who knows what it is like to be us because he became just like us. Jesus was tempted in every single way just as we are. And Jesus is really God, but Jesus is also really man. See, if Jesus was not man, he could not pay the debt that we owed. He could not have been tempted if he was only God because you can't touch God. But if if Jesus wasn't really man, if Jesus wasn't, I'm sorry, if he was man, he couldn't have paid our debt, right? But if he wasn't God, he would have had that sin nature inside of him. He could not have perfectly resisted our temptation, the temptation that he faced. Remember that the first Adam that was was good and was created in the image of God, and yet he was still pursued and deceived by Satan. And unknowingly, he fell into sin in that beautiful garden surrounded by those animals. And here we are, the second Adam, Jesus, born of a virgin, driven out into the wilderness, intentionally offering himself up to Satan in this weakened physical state. He's surrounded by a wild beast, and he is subject to temptation from the word of God itself. You know, Mark kind of skips right through these temptations. We don't even have the accounts here. If you want to find them in, in fuller detail, you can look in Matthew chapter 4 and also in Luke chapter 4. But here we just read that he's being tempted by Satan. And, and what is temptation? Well, temptation really is that deceptive invitation to step into sin, to believe that we know better than God. And think of just the damaging effects of even a small sin. What was that temptation? What was the thing that cast all of humanity into into sin and darkness and brokenness forever? It was to eat a fruit and to trust God. 
think of Abraham as he fell into the temptation of his wife to take Hagar and to have a child through her, or Moses, whose big sin was, was striking a rock in the wilderness instead of speaking to it as God commanded. Or in Joshua, there's a man named Achan who, after Jericho is destroyed and everything gold and, and worth uh, anything was supposed to be devoted to God, takes a kind of a pocket full of golden and silver things and causes the death, the deaths of other people in his camp. See, we so underestimate the draw of temptation and we so overestimate our own power to overcome it. We can have all the best safeguards, all the best guardrails. We can set everything up for ourselves so that we won't fall to temptation on our own. But at the end of the day, each of us are still human. I'm like you. I, if you're like me, you've seen some, some great people, right? Awesome Christian leaders and husbands and pastors fall into little sins that, that then lead them into bigger sins and have seen the destruction of marriages and families and ministries because of people who think that they have set themselves up to the point where they are beyond temptation. But remember, even the Apostle Paul, as he writes in Romans chapter 7, he said this, I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but the very thing, but I do the very thing that I hate, right? That each of us constantly wrestles with temptation. Just because we come to faith in Jesus doesn't mean that we have overcome or ever surpassed the draw of temptation. What we find here is that, that Satan is a personal, evil, angelic being. Right? This is someone who has rebelled against God and would like nothing more than to pull others into his misery with him. Remember that, that Peter is the source of our gospel, the gospel of Mark. And, and Peter says about Satan that he's an adversary. He, is a, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to what? To devour or to destroy. And temptation can come at any time. And, but the greatest temptations are the ones that come when we're at our weakest and when we don't expect them. And also when we're alone and outside of community. Think of Elijah the prophet who after conquering the, the prophets of Baal and seeing God work in this incredible way, runs out into the wilderness after he's chased by the evil queen Jezebel and he sits down and he begs that God would just take his life, falling into this terrible depression. But one of the issues is that often we don't even recognize or believe that there is an adversary at all. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, he says there's two equal and opposite errors to which the human race can fall into about the devils. Right? One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think that most of us probably fall into that first camp. And we, we don't even realize that there actually is an opponent, that there is an adversary. There is someone who would love to, especially as we draw closer and closer to God, you become a bigger and bigger target. The temptations of Jesus were all shortcuts to go against God's will for him. You know, and Satan calls us to question those things that we know to be true, and he plants those seeds of doubt. Did, did God really say that? Does God really want you to do this? You know, Jesus is facing a hunger unlike anything we've ever known. 
And, and, and he's just offered simply the first thing is to turn a, turn a stone into bread. You're thinking, really, what's the big deal? There's lots of rocks. He's just somewhere without bread. Why, why couldn't he just do that? And what would be the big point? Well, the point was that the Lord had called him to go out there, that he was supposed to rely upon the will and the supply of his father. And, and, and Jesus says it's better to, to starve obediently than to go against what God wants. Later on in John 4, Jesus said, my bread is to do the will of the father who sent me. The second temptation was to throw himself down off the temple, really was to, to make everybody believe that he was who he said he was without having to, to do all that stuff, right? Without having to go through, remember Jesus's life in public ministry, we're gonna see it. You know, Jesus has a very, gets very mixed reviews from the crowd. There's, there's people that, that love him and they, they want more and more of him. There's others that start to hate him and they despise him. A lot of times we're tempted to think that, especially in ministry, it doesn't really matter what we do or how we do it as long as more people hear about Jesus. And yet here's God calling us to this idea that it doesn't matter just, the, the results aren't the only thing that matters, right? That it's also about the process. Jesus was called to serve. He wasn't called to be a show. That third temptation that Jesus faced was to bow down and to worship. You know, what is this temptation? This was really, this was the temptation of getting the, cross, getting the crown without the cross. See, Jesus wasn't like the first Adam. He is new and better. He resists and overcomes because he knows God's word and he believes in God's will. Which leads us to the culmination and proclamation of the gospel. So after that time of isolation and preparation and assimilation and temptation, we see that Jesus begins his ministry. After John was arrested, we'll get into that in another week. He, he begins to proclaim in Galilee, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, this wasn't just the culmination of, of a point in time in Jesus' life, but really it was the culmination of all of time itself. All of history is pointing to this very moment in eager expectation and anticipation. And the crazy thing is that almost everybody missed it. See, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus didn't just show the way to the kingdom, but he was the way. He is the king. And the king didn't show up in Jerusalem or in Zion or in Rome or in Athens. But where does he go? He goes to Galilee. This is no place for a king. And what was his message? It was to repent and to believe. Repent is to walk in the other direction, to, to understand that you're an enemy in rebellion and that the Lord has called you to live a different life, a life of submission. You can go from being an enemy of God to a child of God. And belief is actively placing our hope in something else, not just not just a lip service or, or fire insurance or magical words, but it's trusting in Jesus like our lives depend on it. It's not a secret formula, but it's a life submitted. See, because I and you, all of us, were like that first Adam, stuck in that curse of sin, living for ourselves, and nothing's really working. But now we're invited to live life on purpose and for a purpose. The time is fulfilled because the time was right. And that time is still right, right here and right now. There's, there's no need to wait. See, Jesus 
had just emerged from the battlefield and he had defeated Satan once. And now he's getting ready to finish the war once and for all. And he's inviting everybody to come to be a part of his kingdom. He says, repent to your way and turn to my way. Believe the gospel good news. And what is that? The good news of the gospel is simply this, that God made you, that God loves you, that God wants good things for you, that God is pursuing you. And the best thing that God can give you is himself. It's the only way that you can have God is to acknowledge your own brokenness and receive his healing, to empty your hands and receive his grace, to turn your feet and to follow him and to love him by responding to the love with which he has first loved us. So all that Jesus did over the course of his ministry, he did in our place. He was baptized in our place. He resisted temptation in our place. He lived a perfect life in our place. He went to the cross in our place. We were lost and wayward and alone, and he came for us to seek us and to save us, and he still does. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the, the life, the work, the perfection, the submission of Jesus became like us, Lord, who did not submit to the temptation that we experience, but Lord, overcame in power, Lord, who conquered once and who conquered for all, that, that we would be invited to follow his steps, Lord, not, not just to, to act better or to live holier, but to have a life transformed by the forgiveness of in the grace of God. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to embrace Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.